And we're live on the Commercial Real Estate Playbook. Frank, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing really good. We uh, we got a big guest, uh, probably the biggest guest we've had on our pod. It is uh, Sweaty Startup, Nick Huber. Nick, how are you doing? It's so funny that I'm the biggest guest now when I spent three years growing a podcast that nobody listened to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're describing our podcast, Nick, so thank you. Uh, thanks for giving us some hope and light at the end of the tunnel. I'll say growing a podcast is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Um, I now have 30 million impressions a month, 275,000 followers on Twitter. And I'll pull up my lips in while we're talking here, but I've been flatlined listeners for a year plus 3,000, wait, like 1,500 to 3,000 downloads per episode, basically. But it's really worth it because the people who listen to you talk and the people who are on my podcast, it's just a new level of intimacy. It's further down that funnel. They really get to know you. And also, it's fun to go back and listen to my own episodes and my own thoughts. I reckon, do you guys record any like where it's just you two chatting? Yeah, we've we've done a bunch. We we actually started yeah, that do more per that. your recommendation. Yeah, do more because it takes less time for you. And also you want that record of how you were thinking about things. And I can go back and say, how was I feeling this week of 2020, right when COVID was hitting? And I literally get to listen to myself talk about how it was going, which is crazy. So confession, right? I listened to your first My First Million podcast in preparation for today. Okay. And in the my first the one, week, this, the is one way back. this is 2020. This is 2020. You had you had eight facilities, I think, at that time, or 10. I can't remember the number. One of those. Mm-hmm. What do you think mm-hmm. your target cash on cash was for self-storage in 2020? Oh, I mean, we were we were buying not nine million dollars. Like shortly after that episode, I went under contract on a nine million dollar property in upstate New York that was an in-place seven cap, and we were able to take it to a nine cap. Yeah, you you were you were fifteen to twenty percent target cash on cash in that episode, mm-hmm. which shows you how much storage has changed. Which was I thought super super interesting. Yeah, you guys, man, you hit it just a little too late. If you would've, <laughs> if you guys would have started buying storage in two thousand twenty, you'd have a portfolio of the same size as mine because you guys are go getters. I have a lot of respect for what you're doing. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll get into storage. Let's let's start with some of the other things uh, you've been talking about. Uh, you've developed a uh, very large social media following, as you said, and you're starting to venture off into different avenues. Let's let's talk through some of those. Why? How? What do those look like? Yeah, I think um, I'm I'm a I'm pretty blessed because I have a partner, Dan Hagberg, who's one of the best operators I've ever met, and also I have a lot of operating experience myself because we spent ten years in the trenches doing this student storage business that was just brutally hard. Um, we had to hire 200 part-time employees to drive trucks in big cities and we weren't there and we had to get warehouses prepped and, um, we made a lot of mistakes, didn't make very much money, but man, what we learned how to run businesses was incredible. Um, so now the real estate company is growing. Um, we can talk a lot, a lot more about that. That's where, look, that's where all my focus is. Basically. I know that when I die or when I have my big liquidity event or retire or whenever 80% of my net worth will be in storage. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. Um, that business is is got some really good people in it. We've been blessed to find some amazing folks who think like me and make decisions like me. So I get to do the fun stuff, which is make decisions on what we're going to buy, how much we're going to pay. That leaves a lot of free time for me to think about how to make more cash because I need more cash to start putting in my own deals. We haven't sold anything yet. Um, so yeah, when you have a, a newsletter built and a podcast and a and a Twitter following with 30 million people a month who look at your tweets and 40,000 people on an email newsletter. And they're all kind of go-getters. I've, I purposely kind of strayed away from the, you know, cookie cutter, simplified, basic business advice when it comes to 
you, you know, look, I have a lot of tweets that are just one-off tweets that are on, a, on all off topic all over the place, but people really truly follow me because of some of the deeper work I do on management and real estate. Um, so these people are super valuable. So, you know, I have 40,000 people on my email newsletter and probably 20,000 of them are entrepreneurs who are running their own companies. And 2,000 of them are real estate GPs or work for a big real estate shop. And these are folks who need a lot of services. Frankly, it's expensive to do business. It's expensive to hire. It's expensive to do um, a real estate transaction. So um, it's been part of my goal over the past year because 2021 was super busy. We bought a ton of storage. I was very focused on building that team and making some hires. 2022 was a massive disappointment in the amount of storage that we bought. So I had a lot of free time on my hands. And um, you know, Support Shepherd was the first business that really opened my eyes to what's possible with my with my reach. Um, Marshall, the owner of that company, brought me on as just an affiliate when the company was small, doing 30 to 50 grand a month back in early 2021. Um, I started pumping that company on Twitter and I was a customer. I used, used it to hire 20 people. I thought the service was amazing. Um, it's basically the business outsources hires to uh, the Philippines. You can, you can use that company. They will find you employees in the Philippines to work full-time for your company, um, which I know you guys have some folks like that on your team as well. And yeah, you fast forward to today and that's a, that's a really large company. So we have a little bit of a similar tempo um, problem, I'll call it, that you just mentioned, right? We, we had a good deal flow, then second half of 2022 hit. John and I probably have more bandwidth and time on our hands than we had previously, just because deal flow is lower, right? But I think we're probably too young. I, this might be a limiting belief, but I look at it like, hey, I don't want to go stray and focus on another thing because I really want to focus on our core competency, which is managing storage. How did so? My question to you is like, how did you know it was the right time? Like, when is it the right time to start expanding? Yeah. So from 2020 to 2021, end of 2021, we grew from like six employees to 45 employees at Bolt Storage. And when we went over like 50 properties, when we bought our 50th property, um, you, you just you have the scale to put real management in place. Before that, I couldn't afford to pay somebody 200 grand a year to be an extension of me. And now I can and I do. And that person is phenomenal. So uh, yeah, I mean... We just we were just big enough to where we had enough going on where I was ready to man up and make that investment in those people that I needed to hire. Very good. Are you talking publicly about the insurance stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I would love to. Um, a lot yeah. has changed even on that front since uh, two weeks ago when I went on my first million. Yeah, let's let's hear. So what's you know what what's the thesis? What's the competitive advantage? How are you going to uh, make a bunch of money? How are you going to save the rest of us a bunch of money? Yeah. So. It, it going back the last three years, one of the biggest limiting factors has been some of the vendors that we've worked with as we grow bolt storage. Um, it's really hard to get binders for insurance. It's hard to get appraisals. It's hard to get cost segs. It's hard to get all these things done because other companies, you know, yeah, they're good and yeah, they charge good money, but their processes are sometimes brutal. And you go back to a couple of years ago, I want to hear about your guys' insurance um, woes as well. But my business partner, Dan, had to literally go inside the business of a top underwriter and broker and build out a system so that they could actually get us quotes on a property quickly because we were about to buy a property and we put it in their thing. And we are in due diligence trying to figure out what insurance is going to cost. And they were not able to turn around reasonable you know, expectations on what insurance costs. So, um, and just the, the process of dealing with them, it was printing things out, it was uploading things and it was emails here or there. And there was no way to pay online. We didn't have a master policy to pay online until you know, 
Well, we still can't pay online. We've had a master policy finally, but we still cannot pay online with our broker. Can you guys pay online with yours? Um, we've been paying most of our premiums up front for the first year for like the 10% mm-hmm. discount. So yeah. so at renewal, though, you're going to send them another check. You can't even view your yes, policy and pay right. online. This problem exists, but we mitigate it by blunt force trauma. Yes. So do we. We pay it up, we pay it up front at closing as well. But you guys got our attorney has to stroke them a check or we have to stroke them a check instead of just go online and look at all your freaking policies and pay. Yeah. Um, so we decided, you know, Support Shepherd was really blown up. I own 15% of that company and make over 50 grand a month in EBITDA share. That's a company that's going to do four to five million dollars of profit over the next 12 months. Um, the uh, cost segregation firm also started to really grow. And you guys just stopped me and you know, hone in on individual businesses, but the insurance business was similar. Look, insurance sucks. We want to partner or buy an agency and make it a little bit better. We don't need to revolutionize anything. We just want to do a couple things better. And we're on to something this week that's really exciting in that um, if you if you group together 10 to 15 operators and get a little bit bigger scale, you can talk to carriers in a totally different way. If our broker goes to a carrier and says, hey, Nick's buying one property in Pensacola, Florida, what can you do for me? And it's a, it's a $10,000 premium. They're, they're not even going to think about you. But if you have... $700 million worth of storage and you're going to carriers all at the same time, um, you can get way better terms and knock off 10, 20, 30% off the premiums. So that's what we're doing now is we're combining uh, basically portfolio level, you know, multiple operators, but portfolio levels of multifamily and self-storage. And as of this morning, I mean, we have, we have a, a, almost a billion dollars of storage in our CRM that we're going to go to market with all at the same time in about a month. And it's going to be super exciting. That's really interesting. So like, and that's, that's multiple operators just making up that collective, right? Yeah. I'll tell you, it's, uh, you would know most, you'd know most of us. It's basically just all my friends. Uh, we have 35 operators and anywhere ranging from one self-storage facility, it's worth a million bucks to one of these guys has $400 million worth of self-storage. So, um, everybody has, everybody has insurance woes, you know, it's brutal. Yeah, uh, we we certainly do. Um, I know we shared with you that we have properties in Florida, Pensacola, uh, like you mentioned, that the premiums um, just in that market in general, probably 200 to 300% higher than they were in 2021, um, which is a big challenge from an NOI perspective. So, I mean, if you have room for 36, we're going to call you. um, You have have to have my, the guy that we partnered with, John Lovell. We found him. He, he works at a business. He works in Kansas City. He had an insurance agency with five people, did a ton of property and casualty, hairy deals, a lot of builders risk. So he knows this stuff really well. You got to have him on to really tell you the dynamics of it. But basically the big losses that have happened over the last five years in Florida, Texas, Louisiana, um, that just pulled a ton of carriers out of the market. And the ones that are there said, hey, we can stay and we can make a ton of money because everybody else is gone and everybody else is screwed. We're just going to triple our uh, premiums and they're super, super profitable right now. And more carriers are going to come into the market. It's super dynamic. Carriers are leaving and moving and making decisions all the time about where they where they work. And if you're not, if you don't have any leverage, you don't have a lot of properties and your broker doesn't have a lot of properties, it's really hard to get up on what carriers are the best for these high risk, you know, coastal uh, areas. So... I mean, we, we, I don't fully understand the insurance market, right? Like right. I, I only, only, uh, the, the wave tips, but Can we, we know a business model in general, like how, who, how, how yeah, my, money? and 
the the question is like, how big can this get? Right. Cause you're, mm-hmm. you, you've got 36 people, you know, with, with your reach and trust. I mean, I imagine it can, uh, at least four or five, 10 X. Right. Mm-hmm. So I imagine depending on how you are making money off this, it, it can be very, very significant, uh, line of business. This, this could be the biggest business that I start. Um, I, I don't know that it'll rival the long-term implications of my real estate portfolio, but if we can get this right and start saving people a lot of money on property insurance and make it easier and better, uh, yeah, we can do really well. I mean, the, the, the way the model works is the premium amount, you know, only 75% of that goes to the carrier. Another 20% of it goes to the underwriter and a middleman there. And the last 10% or 12% or 15% goes to the actual broker who writes the policy and services the policy with their people. And yeah, you got to have people and you got to have a lot of overhead and you got to have licensure. But, you know, if you write, you know, this kind of policy, if if we knock this out of the park and we can save these 36 people with over a billion dollars worth of self-storage, a lot of money, which I think we will be able to. um, Yeah, I mean, it'll bring in half million, million, two million dollars of commission to our entity. And obviously, we're going to need to staff up and we're going to need to put half million bucks on the payroll. But um, yeah, you do that over and over again. It can be it can be a really big business. That's awesome, man. And you alluded to it before. Um, like making money in the short term of commercial real estate can be a challenge, right? We talked about fees and all the challenges introduced by that. This is a way to make some short-term money. You mentioned co-investing before. What is this going to do in terms of your ability to co-invest in the long term? I don't know. Um, I mean, RE Costeg is also exploding. That's cost segregation studies for real estate professionals. We started that business nine months ago with Mitchell Baldridge, who had already done a couple hundred Costegs for his clients. Um, we've hired some great engineers. We have 26 employees and we have two more that started yesterday. So 20, 28 employees now and we'll be over 30 really soon. I mean, there's been 30 leads since Sunday, people who need cost seg studies. Um, we're we're doing $300,000 plus a month of build cost seg work right now at nine months old with, with these employees. So it's it's massive. But yeah, I mean, if these companies can get big, then... Um, I'm going to need to shield my taxes with a lot of bonus depreciation myself. And I'm going to want to put my money to work somewhere, which is which is real estate, self-storage, whatever. Awesome. That's a good segue. So let's let's pivot to storage a little bit. Um, hey, be- before we get to storage, well, I, w- I want to ask uh, one uh, question is, uh, it's, it seems like you're you're just hitting home runs everywhere, which is a beautiful thing. We're, we're super proud of you. Uh, I want you to talk about some of the things you've gotten wrong, though. What, what are some of those, those mistakes? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, this is not easy stuff. Like to to grow a cost seg firm to this level this fast, we've been super stressed out. It's been all hands on deck. We're tr- we're tracking down people, we're hiring fast, and we're letting some people go who don't work out. Um, it's uncomfortable stuff, and the people who are working on these businesses are super stressed. I'm stressed. I mean, it's part of it. So, I, I don't know. I think. Not not everything will be amazing. That's for sure. We're going to lose some money. You know, some deals that we we have some self storage properties that are under fifty percent occupancy right now that we've bought in the last eighteen months. That's not fun. <laughs> if we want to talk talking about the bad and what's going wrong, we need to talk about real estate. <laughs> oh, for, for sure. And I'm I'm not trying to uh, you know make this a negative podcast. I think uh, uh, you know, like as as Jeff Bezos always says, right? Like we're we're going to go out there, we're going to be aggressive, and we're going to make mistakes all the way. And I think some people, if they choose to just hear the positive messages that you send and don't realize all the grind that goes behind behind it, they're going to be they're going to be misinformed. But uh, and a lot as, of really as you good, say, this 
this is tough stuff, you know, a lot of really good operators who know these individual businesses would look under the hood at what we're doing and say, Oh my God, these guys are amateurs. Like this is horrible. What about the flow here? Like, where's your software stack here? You know, there's a lot of work that we need to do and we're doing it every day to try to make the companies better, but it sucks. Yeah. When a customer has a bad experience or you can't turn around on a timeline, um, we might go out to market and half these people who are, who I talked into letting us see what they have going on. They might pull out and not want to get the, the storage or the insurance. So this might not work either, right? I'm just taking chances. That's a good way to look at it, man. I, I respect that. Okay. So now now we will pivot to storage. So we'll give me your synopsis on where you think things are going in mm-hmm. the short term and then the long term. Yeah. So I, I, I got to preface this by saying well, you and I had an impromptu, us three had an impromptu Zoom call about a day and a half after I got my foot operated on and I was in a really pissed off mood at that point. So probably <laughs> I scared the shit out of these guys, but I mean, yeah, the real estate business is tough right now. Um, and it's tough a lot of times. I had a call with Chris Powers. Highly recommend you listen to his podcast where Mitchell and him and I kind of had a heart to heart about how hard this business can get. And it's not easy all the time and how there should be no such thing as pencils down. And right now, nobody's making any money. The people who act like they're making money in the real estate business are lying to you because there is no rent growth right now in most asset classes. There are no great opportunities to acquire amazing assets at low prices where you have a home run deal. Banks are retrading all over the place. We have a deal in upstate New York that we've owned. We bought it for $1.4 million. We bought, built a $300,000 expansion. It's worth four to $5 million now. It's doing forty grand a month of revenue. And the bank, up, upstate New York, I'm not going to say the bank's name, even though I really want to say the bank's name. They just dicked us around for six months over what was a really simple refi. Um, and then they pulled their board said, oh yeah, things are a little bit too tough. Now, all of a sudden we're nine months in, we're going to pay for all the diligence that we did, the appraisals and stuff, but we're out. We're like, okay, whatever. So we have 14 months to maturity on that loan. It's going to be no problem, no stress to get that cleared. But, um, yeah, talk about another business that needs disrupted. I would love a, a big swing for me in the next 10 years. If things keep going well, we'll be to try to own a bank because, I think there's so much opportunity to run that business well. And you don't need to do anything spectacular. If you just take good bets and loan your money out well and attract deposits and build a good team, I think it could be a phenomenal business. But when when we talk about real estate, you know, there's some relationship between cap rates and interest rates and price per square foot and you know, revenue coming in, right? And I think a couple of years ago we would think that storage was pretty inefficiently traded. You could get, you know, the market wasn't as efficient. You could find good deals and they didn't, storage didn't necessarily fit those market trends. I'm of the opinion that it's gotten much more efficient over the last couple of years. What are your thoughts on it? You know, do you agree, disagree? And mm-hmm. then how does that affect storage um, appreciation and, and trading going forward? You you hit the nail on the head. And I think, other asset classes would say the same thing. Like Moses Kagan, LA was preaching the same thing we're preaching now a year and a half ago in multifamily. He was saying the same thing. It's like the deals aren't there. What's going on? This is horrible. And I was the wise guy, new LP finding or GP finding great deals saying, Moses, you got to give the people what they want. Like you should be able to buy assets in all markets. And I was, I've never been more wrong in my life, right? Because the same thing happened to us over the next 18 months. Um, the upside on storage is priced in right now for the most part. Um, brokers are still broker brokers operate six months behind us period brokers operate maybe even more brokers are operating 12 months behind us and brokers are the one that have staffed up they've all added a bunch of vas they've all added 
a ton of guys out of college to cold call storage owners and tell them that their property is worth 20, 30% more than it's actually worth. So these people get pounded all day. They've been pounded all day for five years. And now every single storage operator that we talk to has pricing expectations that they've been whispered by a broker on the phone. And we can't find many deals worth buying at all. So um, to put in perspective, yeah, you used to be able to buy a six cap and turn it into an eight cap. That was a year and a half ago. Now they want you to pay a four cap to turn it into a six cap. It's priced in. And it's, hard, it's hard business right now. Is it your opinion that this will have some type of return to normalcy in the next two to three years? or Because you're making a bearish case, right, for the acquisitions function of our businesses. So like, what is your yeah. two to three year thought on this? I think it's cyclical. There's a lot of people buying storage right now who didn't realize how hard it was going to be to manage. They thought rates always went up. And I hope that occupancy and rates stay high. Occupancy stays low and rates stay high. That's what I hope happens over the next two years. Because mm -hmm. yeah, it'll hurt. And yeah, I'll have to do some refinances with zero cash out or maybe even a little bit of a like worst case scenario for me, me and my team were talking about this. The worst case scenario is three of these small deals that are limping along right now. We have to put in three to 500 grand of our own cash at refi. That's if rates are at seven and a half percent and we do add zero revenue to the bottom line right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the bearish case for me, but other people would lose their properties and they would get out of this game altogether because they paid. I mean, over the past year, these properties have been trading and they haven't been trading to us. Um, so no, but I think it will. It will it will come back to normal because operating these things is tough. And you guys know it, I know it, and a lot of the people are figuring it out right now. So uh you mentioned this, a lot of people flooding into the space, a lot of a lot, some of these people are on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, John and I are in this population. People accuse you of um creating overzealous buyers in the storage space through your Twitter account. Do you think that your account actually has had an impact on pricing for tertiary storage or is that a bunch of BS? Some, to some degree, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the storage owners, especially in the Midwest, Southeast and Northeast are getting twice the call volume from potential acquirers because of me. I'm still seeing deals trade to the companies that I was competing with two years ago and three years ago. Um, the people who are buying the most storage were not entering the business because they saw Nick's Twitter account. So we're at the same place we would be without me, but maybe we got there a little faster. I don't know. It's an, it's a really interesting thought. I had to do what I had to do to go build this investor list of 1500 people and raise 40, $50 million. I had to go speak, talk my book and talk about how great of a business it was. So I have zero regrets. Um, but yeah, it. It's it's tougher now, that's for sure. Let's let's talk about finding deals. Part of the reason Frank and I got into storage is because we thought we were going to be the off-market kings because we bought everything in single family off-market. And um we've I think bought one deal of of 10 or 11 off market. Everything else has been through a broker. We continue to cold call and send direct mail and, and working it hard, but uh final off-market deal is super tough. What's your experience been and how do you see it changing? In 2022 all but one of our deals was off market. So we bought $38 million worth of storage and all but one of the deals for $6 million was off market. Um, but one of them was like a neighbor of a property that we bought on market. You know, so it's it's hard to say. Like we're getting some kind of flywheel around having a little bit of a reputation in some of the towns that we buy in. Um, but no, it's super frustrating. I lost, I had four full-time acquisitions guys. I lost three of them. They quit. <laughs> Um, 
I'm begging the last one who's the best one to stay. And I hope he doesn't quit because I know that I know that this will turn around and I know that we're going to go back and over the next five years, I know that one of those years we're going to buy a hundred million dollars worth of storage. I know it. It's just not going to be this year. <laughs> so it, it's been, it's been really hard for sure. Does um, it, it used to be the Tuesday morning acquisitions call. It used to be my favorite call of the week and talking to those guys was it, it, everybody was like, Oh my God, look at all this opportunity. And now, honestly, it's the number one stress in my life is that Tuesday morning call because it's just we're we're those those our acquisitions folks are in hell right now. Yeah, and is that mostly based off of pretty much a commission only pay structure for that role within your company, or are you tweaking we've that to, at all? We've had to adjust it. I mean, we're doing draw on commission now into the future. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> but it's like and, digging a hole, right? How long can it last? Yeah, it's it's tough. Deal flow is challenging. Um, another part of that is also how you fund deals. I think you syndicate. I think you've syndicated all your deals. Is that accurate? We bought a couple in 2017 and 18 by ourselves that were amazing for us because they were little six hundred thousand dollar deals, and now they're worth one point five or two million, which is amazing money when you do that with no partners. But yeah, the, since 2000 mid 2020, we haven't bought a single deal without raising money from outside investors. Got it. We so lowered our can... promote though. Our promote was 50%. We lowered it to 35%. Um, we're giving investors more just because there's not enough, right? We can't charge a 50% promote and, and clear a 12 IRR on, on a six cap exit. Yeah, we, we've done similar. We've increased our pref. It's at eight now. You know, you gotta, the market is the market. Lowered, we lowered our pref because the cash flow is not there. We lowered our pref from eight to seven and we increased our promote or decreased our promote from 50% to 35%. Yeah, yeah. I, that makes sense too. I think we're both saying like we're given... The yeah. investor or something, but mm-hmm. you're prioritizing a different number. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but talking about funding, like you could raise, if you had a gun to your head, I'm sure you could raise 50 million bucks. I don't know how long it would take you, but you'd eventually get there. You know, you've already oh, done. If food. I went to, if I went and started, you know, giving back on even more terms and drop my promote a little bit more, drop my acquisition fees, um, we could raise an unlimited amount of money from the family offices in our network. But um, I prefer to raise deal by deal, smaller checks, better terms, do less volume. I'm not one of those guys who's going to chase, who's going to chase a uh, family office money to work hard for the same money, work harder for the same money. Right. So even if deal flow picked up, you don't see yourself doing a $50 million fund. Uh, I mean, 50 million is not too hard. We might be able to deploy that in a year. I'd still go deal by deal. I think though, okay. deal by deal, deal by deal. If you can raise that money and you know, you can raise that money is the best way because you're not watering down the promote from, for other deals, right? You don't have to clear those last three or four properties and sell the whole fund to get into the promote. Meaning if I raise, if I buy 20 properties on a, on a fund and I sell two or three of them, I've only still returned a little bit of the capital. I'm not in the promote. I'm not getting paid yet. But if mm-hmm. I, if I have 20 deals and three of them are home runs and they're going to get in the promote like right away with cash flow or whatever, the deals that take longer or their value add or whatever won't water down the promote on those deals, those earlier deals. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I think if I'm thinking about that strategically, I think you're that's more of like a quality over quantity uh, approach, mm-hmm. which I respect. Mm-hmm. Just wanted, yep. I wanted to ask the question because um, I think some people could probably look at your business and say like, hey, there's an easy button here for deal flow, right? And it's the way you fund the deals. And I just wanted to see what you thought. So I sense. think that's the hard. I think that's the easy button for the person who tells me that. But the family office that, that I'm sitting in front of, it's their easy button to get a big chunk <laughs> and get me to do all the work. <laughs> Right. But for me, going out and trying to buy $300 million of storage is not an easy button. I got to go hire a bunch more executives. I got to double my team. That's a ton of stress. And if I'm getting a 20% promote on 300 million or a 
50% promote on 100 million and I can buy better deals at the $100 million level and I can get my dad and my mom and my grandpa and all my friends involved and we can have like, you know, some wealth generation at, at the smaller level. That's, I'm, I'm making the same money for a third of the work. So one of the interesting things is I, I think both of us have found mom and pop owners that weren't charging enough. That's in my opinion, been, been the biggest lever we could pull, you know, get uh, rates up to market rates or even higher in market rates. I can also make the argument that that opportunity is gone forever in places where we want to buy at, you know, uh, square footage that we want to buy. Like all those people have been contacted, right? Maybe not all of them, but a, a lot of them, right? And also that it's not working as well anymore. I mean, I'm about to send an investor letter um, in the next couple of days, probably by Friday this week. My, I send it out once or twice a year and my portfolio is at 69% occupancy right now. 69% occupancy. We are below 70% portfolio wide. We have three properties below 50% occupancy. I hit it too hard. I raised rents too much. And yes, our NOI is up. And yes, we get to brag about how revenue is up in 18% year over year. And yes, all this great stuff. But if I go to refi with a property at 48% occupancy, a bank is going to say, what the fuck? Yeah. It's nerve wracking. So, so if we think those opportunities are gone, then not only are we hoping for distress in the market, but we're basically saying that is the only way we're going to be able to find value add deals. Right, like there, there isn't another way that we're going to be able to find value add deals unless distress hits the market. You, you agree? Yeah. Where I think we do well is when the market is roaring. When the market was ripping, we did a good job filling a lot of units at very high rents. And I don't, I don't regret any of that. And honestly, raising the rents was the correct thing to do. Um, that will come back. Like when the when the rates go back down, sub. Four and a half percent to buy houses. People are going to start moving again. That last fifteen percent of the market that's not in the market right now, not in transition, they're going to enter again. They're going to rent units. We will have a boom time again when all rent, all storage units are rented. And at that point, you and me, we're going to do a really good job raising and driving rents, and we're going to add more value than other operators. We know that. But now, yeah, you cannot, you cannot buy a property and raise rents thirty nine bucks a unit anymore. You can't do it. And if you do, then if you do 30, 40% of your people are going to move out and you're going to have some problems in your hands. True. And to be clear, I think um, November was like the, the bottom for us in terms of demand for storage. We're starting mm-hmm. to see late February, early March move-ins go up. So viewers, yeah, it's not all doing well. We're going to have our first positive rental month in our, in our biggest portfolio in upstate New York in February since uh, July of last year. Okay. We're seeing similar stuff. So that's good. Yeah. That's good to hear. But yeah. um. Part of me, honestly, guys, like I look at our business model. We're buying facilities. In a lot of cases, the CapEx is minimal. Sometimes we add square footage. Sometimes we don't, right? But revenue management is our primary revenue driver. And part of me is like, we had a deal closed and it was like an 90% IRR, right? You've had deals that are probably like 50 to like 120%. I don't even know what your biggest home run is, but it's somewhere, it's big, right? It's a really, really good return. And I look at the work we're doing and I think at scale, the work we're doing does not justify 50% IRRs, like straight yeah, up. The, market, the market's working its magic. Yeah. The market's we're, doing what it should do. We're property managers. Like the, the returns we have experienced are reserved for developers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's just like resetting of expectations that's occurring not only with brokers, sellers, lenders, which you alluded to before, but also like us. <laughs> like mm-hmm. part of me is also like our us and our LPs also 
the problem. Like, like we're doing property management. Do we have to have a two in front of our IRR on our deck to raise money? I hope not, because if that's the case, two years from now we're fucked. Like we're not going to have mm-hmm. a business. So mm-hmm. some of it's just it wasn't correct. It was never. It was never correct. It was just a wonky. Yep. Yeah, mark. it was a business. Is really funny in that there's windows in time that present amazing opportunity in every right. industry, and I think sometimes you just got to capitalize on that window in time to make money fast. And I feel very blessed that me and my partner did that. Yes. Yeah, and we're going to continue. We're going to continue to do it. And I think the window will open back up and the properties we're buying now are going to be good long-term deals for us and our LPs, but it's really, really hard to find them now. No doubt. How has your buy box changed over the last two years? Um, you know, we, we've gone from basically, you know, looking at price per square foot um, to going, hey, some of these, even if price per square foot is really low, the area sucks. The facility sucks. We're not buying this, right? So mm-hmm. I would say our, our buy box, our standards have gotten much higher. So we say no faster to a lot more deals. But how how have you guys changed your buy box? Absolutely. I mean, we've been burned on a couple where, uh, you know, we had a tremendous homeless problem on the property we bought in Nashville. Tremendous. It was like, knowing what we know now, we would not have bought that property. It's doing fine. It's actually been positive the last three months. Like it's a good market. Um, we're looking at a $10 million deal that I think we're going to get under contract in Southern Pennsylvania. And it's, but it's seven different properties. They're all spread out. They're all rural. They all got gravel lots and they all got gates. So it's like, we're not going to stretch for that. You know, we want to be at 50 bucks a foot and we want to stabilize at an eight cap. Like we're not going to stretch and somebody else will probably buy it. And they're going to get a, a deal where it's like, all right, well, your basis is too damn high to make any money on this thing. Yeah. Who's your buyer, right? You might refi, but let's, you know, who's going to buy that? This is another huge problem with the storage business is that like the, the sub market management fees, as people roll these up, the buyer isn't there. They want to roll it up and be able to pay somebody to be able to pay a four, seven, five cap. But anybody who's managing at scale, it's super expensive to manage real estate at scale. We're learning that because we've actually scaled and removed ourselves from, you know, the operations of, of bolt storage. But like, the buyer, the prime storage, the extra space, the QSmart, whatever you think you, whoever you think your buyer is, um, their cap rate's not calculated the same way your cap rate's calculated. You know, it's it's gonna it's gonna take an institutional investor forty percent of revenue to manage an asset. Period. Yeah, and getting a facility facility off the ground changes too. Like your first facility, let's say it has no no gate, no cameras, right? You're like, oh, I'll just call the camera company. I'll call the electrician. You call them. Every individual person, you just call them cost eight grand, 10 grand, whatever it costs, you put it up. Well, you have seven of them at once. You're going to call a professional vendor that does all the shit at once for you. And they're going to mark up the price, right? So like mm-hmm. the cost of streamlining that operation is likely a 60% increase in the cost of or equipping like me, that gonna, facility. Or like me, you're going to have four full-time people on the payroll for property improvements and a 200 grand a year. You're going to have 200 grand a year overhead yeah. just to oversee pro- just to oversee those vendors. <laughs> yeah, tomato, tomato, right? It's the same yeah. shit. It's, it's all extra money, right? It's yep. I, I get it. Yep. I get it. As, as you've grown, I think, uh, both personally and professionally, uh, what, what mentors have really made a difference uh, to you? And are you in any specific organizations that have helped? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just now joining a group. And I think I can say the name now. It's Hampton with Chris Power or uh, Sam Parr. Sam Parr started a company called Hampton. And he it's a professional development group. It costs about 10 grand a year. And, and they have executive coaches and really cool uh, uh, mentorship, like guidelines. I've been to two meetings. It's phenomenal. 
Um, but no, I, I've been advice and mentorship is 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 unique because some of it is really, really amazing. And the advice that Chris Powers gave me early on about charging the right fees and building the right company and making sure I wasn't underselling my promote because guys, when I came on Twitter and started talking about my 50% promote and my 2.5% acquisition fee, um, I got I got roasted by a lot of people that I respect. A lot of people that I respect that have built billion dollar funds and raised all this money. They were in my DMs saying, Nick, you're fucking nuts. You've got to lower your fees. You got to go bigger. You got to raise more money. And then I'd get on a call with them and I'd take their advice and they'd tell me a bunch of good reasons. And, I, and this was easy to get like dreamy eyes at these people because they'd done a lot. And eventually I just told them like, that's not the right way. No, I'm not going to do it. I don't believe you. <laughs> and I'm really glad I did that. And I'm really glad I listened to Chris Powers. So I think a lot of people when they're in real estate, it's a business where you, and, and I think Moses Kagan or somebody had a, a tweet a week or two ago where he said, the first thing you do is go talk to all the wealthy people you can and get advice from everybody. And that's the first thing many real estate guys do. And if you look at folks with dreamy eyes and act like they know everything and you take every piece of advice you get, it's going to be a problem, a big problem. So I've always been the kind of guy who gets a couple pieces of advice and then makes the best decision and fucking runs with it. <laughs> Here's a, here's a tough question. What else is conventional wisdom in real estate that you think is also bullshit or incorrect? I think that I don't think real estate is the best place to get wealthy. Okay, where where do people go? Where do we go? Entrepreneurship is the best place to get wealthy and real estate is the best place to grow your wealth and keep stay wealthy. I don't think I think way too many people with no money are playing in the real estate game. And if you don't have a balance sheet, I mean, the only reason why we were able to build that first self-storage facility is because I had a small business generating 300 grand a year and I wasn't spending any money. I had 500 yeah. grand in the, I had 500 grand in the checking account at 27 years old when we built that first building. You know what I mean? Yeah. That allowed me, my small business, my entrepreneurship, I learned how to run a business. I learned how to manage people. I learned how to make decisions. I got really good at that stuff. Then I made some money and then I put that money into real estate and built the real estate firm. If I just skipped that first step, I mean, yeah, I could get here. Chris Power skipped it. A lot of people have skipped it, but it's harder. It's harder to do it. Chris ran around and got really scrappy and added a bunch of value to some houses in the peak of the, like that guy was a killer. Not many people can do that. The only thing that's, you know, there's a lot of nuance to that. And if, I think if you have access to capital from a wealthy family, you have wealthy friends, you're a good salesperson, then real estate can really work. But if you're, you're a guy like me who's two middle-class parents and you know net worth of the whole family is under 500 grand when you're in high school, forget real estate and go start a business. Yeah. I, I respect you saying that a lot. I think um, John and my story is, is kind of like, it's kind of emblematic of that. We, John's 37, I'm 35. So we're a little bit older. We're older than you at least. And we're like, Hey, at the beginning, how do we get into multifamily? Oh shit, we can't, right? We don't, we're, we don't have enough money, right? So what do you do? You flip houses. You have a portfolio of small rentals, you sell them, then you co-invest in your first deal. Like there's like a, depending on where you start, like there's just this track you have to follow. Yours was a service business. Ours was flipping, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. you just got to get there, whatever. And you guys, you guys put your cash in the bank with that company and learned how to hire people, learned how to manage people. And then, then you started syndicating, raising money for bigger deals. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Coming from the background you came from, um, how do you think about ambition and then breaking through 
those limiting beliefs, right? I, I imagine, you know, your first deal, you know, you had some doubt, then, you know, get into certain size portfolio. How have you thought about kind of breaking through those ceilings? And do you still have some of those limiting beliefs? Yeah, I think the, it's just training. I got, I got trained really early to be super comfortable in chaotic environments where we were taking risk. We're starting companies, we're launching branches at these schools where, uh, you know, really putting it on the line and taking chances where we don't know what the result's going to be. We lost money. We learned. And I think it, it all comes back to like decision-making nowadays from the times when people are really little, like they're, when they're, when they're kids, parents are making every single decision for their kids and they're keeping them in a bubble. They're like, Oh, I don't want Nick to get hurt or suffer or struggle. So I'm going to put him in a bubble and I'm going to fight every single battle for him. It's always the coach's fault. It's always the teacher's fault. It's never Nick's fault. If Nick gets in trouble, he gets a DUI in high school. I'm going to go get that reversed. We're going to let him off the hook. We're not going to let make him make him. Uh, I didn't get a DUI in high school, but we're not going to make him like, you know, live with the results of his actions. My parents raised me the opposite. I was super insecure about calling calling somebody on the phone when I was a kid. I, I wanted a friend to come over, but I didn't want to call and ask their parents. My dad sat me down and I didn't get to have a friend over until I called and asked the guy's dad if, if that friend could come over. He'd make me order at restaurants. He'd make me talk to people. He'd put me in all these little bitty uncomfortable situations and make me make decisions. And he'd watch what happened and I would learn how to make those decisions. People get really insecure and stressed and a lot of anxiety around making decisions if they're not used to it, period. Like making a decision is insecure. It's you get a lot of anxiety around it. I still get anxiety around, around making decisions. Some people it cripples. They can't make decisions because they never have. They've never practiced. They never got a chance to practice on the little stuff. So they go to college and they're finally away from their parents for the first time and they and they cannot function. They can't function in life. And then they go to the workforce and they're forced to like, okay, you got a chance. You can take a little risk here on your bet on yourself, or you can just go work at the biggest company you can and do exactly what you're told all day. And they're obviously, they're obviously going to go that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then, and then stress is like unmade decisions. Like if I'm stressed out, it's because I have decisions inside my company or inside my life that I haven't addressed and I haven't taken care of. And so it, it's just a cycle. It's like you're, you're, you have anxiety around making decisions. The decisions don't get made. Then you get stressed. Then it goes back to more decisions pile up and you get even more anxiety and then you get even more stressed. And these people, like there's so many competent people that I know that just are not going to live up to their earning potential because they're insecure and they're afraid to make these decisions. So like early on, my parents taught me how to make the decisions. I'm going to teach my kids how to make the decisions. I'm going to let them suffer. I'm going to let them struggle. I'm not going to protect them. And I think that's the best thing that you can do to try to raise somebody with an entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, great answer. Love it. I, I want to talk about being an athlete a little bit. I, I know you're a very successful uh, college athlete that uh, you don't really talk about it much, but uh, I looked up the stats. You were uh, you were rocking it. Um, how did being an athlete play into your mindset now? And then how do you think about it raising kids? I know, you know, Frank and I spent the weekend with a bunch of army football players and being around people that are like that super competitive steely eyed killers was, was, um, you know, so motivating. And then I coach my kids in flag football and trying to teach them those high character and tangible things on a daily basis is really meaningful to me. So, you know, talk to me about your history and then how you think about raising kids. Before you I answer think- that, I just want to call John out because um, we were down hundreds of dollars and John made uh, my playing partner put out a one and a half foot putt 
on Saturday. So that's so that's how that's how competitive it. it got. He missed it, and we doubled the money. It was <laughs> yeah, a good he missed it, and, and they're the crying bet. about it. <laughs> no, yeah, you got to put everything out. That's a no. There, thank you, Nick. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. He, he's right, he's clearly a killer, and uh, Frank and his partner were weak. <laughs> Okay, so I, I'm I'm really I'm really battling with this now because I have a five year old and the other five year olds are playing all these sports and in my opinion wasting their time. But am I going to buy into like the 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 sport machine that exists now for high schoolers and junior high kids? I think sports was unbelievable for me because it was a level playing field. It was a level playing field. A white kid like me, with two loving parents, and at the Ivy League, I could show up on the track next to a black kid or a Mexican kid or an Asian kid who's been through hell with tons of trauma. And that kid can whoop my ass. <laughs> like they don't care where you're from. They don't care who, what you're about. It's one-on-one and it's, you're out there and you got to make decisions and you're getting results and feedback on those decisions. And you're the great thing about sports is that you struggle a lot and it's way more heartache than it is joy. You lose more, the lose, the losses hurt way more than the wins. You miss more shots than you take. And it's just a, an exercise in dealing with failure. Period. That's what sports is. And life is the same way. Life is really hard. Unless you have that person protecting you and putting you in that bubble, which is not going to set you up for success. Unless you have those wealthy parents that are just going to protect you, which most of us don't. Sports is great practice for the real world. So I freaking love it. I don't know if I'm going to play the game, though, to, to, that it takes to get my kid to be at the next level. I think it's all overblown. Not enough people have balance. Kids are spending, parents are spending every weekend on the road to travel to baseball games to try to get little Johnny a scholarship to some $60,000 a year private school in, in Bumble, you know, Michigan. It's it's absurd what some parents and family do to try to empower their kids. And if they put that energy towards something else, like teaching their kids how to make decisions and teaching their kids how to make money and teaching their kids how to add value to the world and build friendships and relationships and look up at somebody when they come and talk to you, if they spent the energy that they're spending on sports, to tell their kids how to do that stuff, I think it would go way further. I mean, I'm looking over at at 90% of kids who are between 10 and 15 years old and they do not look up. They don't know how to look somebody in the eye. They don't know how to talk to anybody. That's a tremendous advantage for my kids because my kids are going to be the ones who do know how to do that stuff. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm trying to figure out which way I'm going to go. And I know that I'm competitive enough and I have enough fun with sports and it was such a big impact on my life that I, I know that it'll be a part of my kid's life. But I always had balance with sports. I always had balance. Even in college, when I was an All-American, I was going to Wednesday night pitchers and and hanging out with and chasing girls. And I was still doing okay at school. And I was starting my company. And I cared about other things. I watched so many guys. All they cared about was sports. And when it was over, they had no options and no skills. Yeah, but if you don't have to do all that. Like you, yeah. um, if you're if the if your end goal is like, hey, face adversity learn how to win, learn how to lose, learn how to lose, and then try to improve yourself. Like they could just play high school. And if they're good oh, yeah. enough in college oh, sports, yeah. and you will figure that out. If you're I trying agree. to make 60 grand off your kid, that's a different story. It's not, it's not required. I agree. I agree with you. It's just, it's changing though. Like it's, you can't make a varsity baseball team without traveling all summer in high school, in high yeah. school. It's you tough. can't do, you can't make a varsity swim team without getting up at 4 a.m. every morning and going to take your kids to swim practice. Uh, football is different because football is athletic and you don't have to have the fundamentals to go out and crush it, crush it at football. Basketball is tough. I mean, but yeah, I'm absolutely going to keep putting my kids in sports. Hands down. They're going to play sports. Just I don't know if I'm going to really buy into the machine. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's it's tough. We just moved to Tampa, Florida and, um, you know, upper middle class, 
uh, sports, youth sports and this area is, is an eye opener. I, I coach my kids in part because I enjoy it. And also in part because there's other coaches out there that think they're Vince Lombardi and just scream at kids the whole time. It's, it's pretty scary in my opinion. Like it's, it's unfortunate, but Hey, we want to be respectful of your time. So let's, let's wrap it up. Nick, anything else we want to talk about or any questions uh, you, you want us to ask you that, that we didn't get to. No, I appreciate your guys' time. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm happy to promote it and excited to help you get a couple more listeners. Awesome. Appreciate it, Nick. Frank, take us out. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week. Peace, everybody.